3: Hey, everybody, you're listening to the Third Coast Podcast. I'm Katie Mingle. If you're a fan of the podcast or of any of the work that Third Coast does, I hope you'll consider supporting us with a donation. We're in the middle of our end-of-the-year fundraising campaign, and donations from listeners like you truly do help us out. Go to our website, thirdcoastfestival.org, to give. And while you're there, feel free to browse our library of nearly a 1,000 audio docs, and pick up some cool holiday gifts in our merch shop. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. From the Third Coast
4: International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxey, and this is ReSound. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and sonic secrets we reveal only to you. Shh.
5: I was invaded by music from my very, very infancy.
4: We listened to find the very best audio from all over the world and then offered up to you on ReSound.
5: The only other thing that really like obsesses me as much as music is um, the insanity of injustice.
4: There's so much more to music than notes on a page. Imbued in the essence of any song or symphony are generations of influence and life experience.
5: There's no political rally that ever happened in South Africa without singing being the main feature.
4: Jazz especially was born during turbulent times, and behind the music are often sad and beautiful stories of historical significance and personal struggle.
6: One hundred years later, the Negro still is not free.
4: Later in this hour, the story of Anne Searcy, a 76 year old jazz singer who grew up as one of the only people of color in Old Orchard Beach, Maine, where music legend Duke Ellington became her hero. But first, the musical and political journey of South African jazz artist and activist Hugh Masekela. Born in wittybank South Africa, his career paralleled and was inextricably linked to the fight for civil rights in both the United States and South Africa. Now we learn about the man behind the trumpet. And I assure you, if you aren't a fan now, you will be by the time of Home and Heart is over.
5: I grew up in... Um A country that is pregnant with music of all types and, of course, the melting pot of southern and central Africa. I was marinated in jazz and I was seasoned in um, music from home. I'm a great student of African music, but I have a very wide training in that I played in the dance bands, in the dance halls in South Africa, in the townships where I used to have to duck bullets and knives. Every time you looked at South African news, people were being shot at, but they were always singing. I remember Dizzy Gillespie saying to me one day, she I'd like to be in this revolution because there's so much music and everybody seems so happy, there's a lot of dancing. I lived in exile for 30 years. I left South Africa when I was 21. I came back when I was 51.
7: It's impossible to divorce Hugh Masekela and his music from the political struggles of South Africa. From early childhood, his musical development was intricately woven with the life and politics of the country. He was born in 1939 under a British colonial administration, just nine years before the introduction of apartheid. He grew up in Whitbank, a one-street, right-wing Afrikaner town surrounded by coal mines and coal trains with endless carriages pulled by steam engines churning smoke into the air. Men from all over Southern and Central Africa came to work in the mines. At night, they'd drink themselves into a stupor at his grandmother's Shabeen to blot out the memory of the blackness of the mines and the families and land they'd left behind. Hugh's childhood was shaped by their stories and songs.
5: Song is the literature of South Africa. It's the literature of most of Southern and Central Africa and West Africa. Everything is expressed a lot through song. If there's weddings, there's songs for that. There's no political rally that ever happened in South Africa without singing being the main feature. Um, In the churches, before television, when we were kids, we had hundreds and hundreds of songs. Weekends were always um, carnival because uh, of the great migrant labor population from um, Central and Southern Africa and the South African hinterland. On weekends, they used to find open spaces and um, show their stuff, their costumes and pageantry and the dances and stuff like that. And we grew up with that. The first townships were like um, real hovels, you know, mostly mud houses with corrugated iron roofs and like make do fences and all that time. My grandmother uh, was one of those few people who like, were enterprising and had like a, a what you call a shibin, which was an illegal drinking house. Because liquor was not legalized for Africans in South Africa until 1961. All the miners used to come and drink at different times. I mean, the house was built so that like, The township elite would drink in the living in the dining room. And my grandmother's friends, they'd be sitting with her uh, while she was cooking, ironing her clothes and serving other people in the kitchen. They used to drink in the kitchen. There was a big kitchen table and iron cold stove. And then there was a big yard with small little stoops where like most of the laborers, people from the mines, used to drink. And they'd drink sorghum beer, which is the cheapest kind of beer that was brewed and... um, one of the great things also about Woodbank was that all these people brought their different musics and their different stories about where they came from. And as a little kid, I mean, I hung out with all of them in the backyard in the kitchen and, you know, knew all about their countries. Everybody had a gramophone. We were the most voracious consumers of any kind of music. The most popular music when I was a kid was Cowboys. Roy Rogers, Tex Ritter, Jim Reeves, Gene Autry. And uh, we knew all their songs from Ghost Riders, uh, In The Sky, you know. We used to like imitate when we were kids, Smiley Burnett, because he was the greatest uh, yodler.
6: Are <laughs> you We loved
5: all the stuff. A-B-I-O. I was invaded by music from my very, very infancy, and is the only thing I've ever heard in my head. The only other thing that really like obsesses me as much as music is um, the insanity of injustice. It was the only home that didn't have a gramophone. My grandmother, she didn't want it. Johanna didn't listen to any music except um, except she was in the Lutheran church. She was a prayer woman in the Lutheran church, and she sang those songs. But she also was in Debele, the Debele Royal. So, like, she also sang, like, the traditional songs. When Johanna died, she was 104, and... Uh, we sang by her bedside the songs that she used to sing us. We used to sing with her when we were little kids Wale Um Twana
6: Elela Umamake Wam Tata Wam Begesi Fubenisake Wati. Those are
5: songs that were sang to us when we were small, you know. I lived for the gramophone. My grandmother's sister lived two doors away from us. And my uncle Putu had a gramophone, and he had a most beautiful voice. In fact, he was my first influence. I still tried to sing like him and used his technique. We became an Anglican priest, and he used to sing all
6: those, you know, and stuff like
5: that. We used to sing along together when I was two, three. Pardon me, boy, is that a
6: Chattanooga choo-choo?
5: You know, and I got a girl oh, in Kalama, and I didn't know what I was singing about. And I had an idea because my parents had been school teachers, so they taught us how to read when we were very small. When I was five, six, I was already reading the newspapers for my grandmother and her friends. You know, and as on Saturday they'd sit around sniffing their snuff, and they'd say, "So, what are the white people saying? <laughs> Is Hitler coming?" <laughs> And then um, we'd imitate um, Nat called Mona. And some kids just used to do him spot on, you know. Mona Lisa. And then we'd all join in harmony. Mona Lisa. And at night, you know, we'd sing us. And then um, somebody, shut
6: up, we're trying to sleep.
7: Was it Louis Armstrong that drew you to the trumpet? Or was it Clifford Brown?
5: No, it was a movie called Young Man with a Horn.
1: sir. Which one's the cheapest?
5: Well, let me see. I think the trumpet. I can let you have this one for about nine dollars.
2: Play a trumpet?
5: No, but I can learn. I started
1: to learn piano. If I had one of those, I could carry it around with me and play it any time I wanted.
5: You got the money?
1: No, but I could get a job. Well, now, I think maybe you are a musician. Yes, sir.
5: It was the story of Big Spider Big, and I don't know if you saw it, but uh, Kirk Douglas played the part. Someday when I'm really good, I'm going to do things with this trumpet nobody's ever thought of doing. I'm going to hit a note that nobody ever heard before. And Harry James played the uh, soundtrack, and Harry James had the most unbelievable, beautiful tone. I mean, when he played ballads, whether it was I'm in the Mood for Love, or My Dream is Yours, or Stardust, you know. I'd been a piano player already for like eight years, but when I heard uh, the soundtrack on that, I had to play the trumpet.
0: News from Government House Victoria where South Africa's newly elected Prime Minister, Dr Malan, was
5: sworn in at the beginning of a new chapter in South Africa's history. The colour question
6: is rapidly increasing in seriousness and urgency. I consider apartheid, that's the separation policy, to be South Africa's last chance to remain a white man's country.
7: In 1948, the Conservative National Party won parliamentary elections and gained control of the South African government. Apartheid, a word that means separateness in Afrikaans, became national policy. Within two years, legislation was enacted which would dispossess many black South Africans of their land and segregate communities into racial groups. Hugh moved to the city to live with his parents and was sent to St Peter's, an Anglican boarding school run by Father Trevor Huddleston a British chaplain and vocal campaigner, against the new apartheid laws.
5: Father Huddleston, who was like, you know, he really like got the anti-apartheid movement going. He started me out because he was a friend of my parents. Uh, my mother was a social worker and my father was chief health inspector in Alexander Township, which was the hub of the resistance in South Africa, and Mandela, all of them, wherever they came from in the hinterlands, they started their lives in Alexander Township. So Huddleston, who was also an ANC person, knew my parents, and um, he was very worried about me because I was a very restless soul. In boarding school, he was our chaplain. I was in bed with the flu. He said, what do you really want to do, creature? He called everybody creature. I said, because uh, the monks, the nuns, the monitors, the prefects, the teachers, everybody's complaining about you. And I said, if I can get a trumpet father, I think I won't bother anybody anymore. So he got me not only a trumpet, but a trumpet teacher. Uncle Sauda was the head of the Johannesburg Municipal Native Brass Band. And three months later, I was playing songs, so the kids, some of them just went to Huddleston and said, Father, can I have a trombone? Can I have a trumpet? And he'd go out and hustle them.
0: Among the very few places in colonial South Africa, where black South Africans had access to good music, teaching were the Anglican-run schools. This was one of the things that apartheid ended. One of the things it did was to change the curriculum and close those schools. So uh, Masakela and his playing colleagues, including Jonas Gwangwa and many others, actually had a formal music training. They heard church music. They heard the music of petty drummers on the streets. They heard miners' music in the Shabins. They went to the Odin Cinema and heard... Lena Horne singing Salt Lake City Blues. and Of course, in Hugh's case, he also talks with great affection about the traditional music, rural music, which his grandmother also sang. So out of all these things, it was a very syncretic mix. It wasn't that one was more influential than another, but they all came together. And of course, with a musical brain, you also see commonalities between them. Like you see the the syncopation in jazz music as bearing a family relationship to the syncopation and hocketing in African traditional music. Those kinds of things happen.
7: Gwen Ansel, music journalist, academic and author of Soweto Blues, a history of jazz, popular music and politics in South Africa.
5: When Huddleston was deported from South Africa, when he was asked to leave, the community of the resurrection is order, had a lot of missions also in the United States. And uh, he went through there. One of the monks... Was an outstanding clarinet player and he had become a friend of Louis Armstrong's. I mean, he introduced Addison to Louis Armstrong and he, uh, Addison told Louis Armstrong about the band of young Africans. And Louis Armstrong sent us one of his trumpets and we became famous without even having tried. At the time that the trumpet came, Louis Armstrong was on tour all over Africa, but he wasn't allowed to come to South Africa. But his trumpet was just bigger than if he had come on tour. By
7: 1960, Hugh Masakela was well known in South Africa. Along with the beautiful young singer Miriam McCaber, he'd played trumpet in the orchestra of the successful musical King Kong, which toured throughout South Africa and was invited to London. He was getting regular work, performing to packed houses seven nights a week with his band, The Jazz Epistles. Band members included Jonas Gwangwa and Abdullah Ibrahim, who, like Masakela went on to have international careers. The Jazz Epistles played a mixture of bebop favourites by Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker and Duke Ellington, as well as composing their own songs.
0: The music of the Jazz Epistles was actually some of the most exciting that anybody had heard at that time. They made one album just before, this was now the 1960s, and the clearances of areas like Sophiatown were now proceeding apace. So this was in fact one of the last chances for that kind of music to flourish within South Africa.
1: is a special announcement. The Governor General has
4: proclaimed a state of emergency in about 80 of the 300 magisterial districts of Several hundred natives gathered peaceably to protest the pass laws. Police mounted on tanks, opened fire.
1: 69 natives
4: were killed, 176 wounded. Most of the victims were shot in the back. Some of the dead were children, women, and elderly men.
7: During the 50s, the apartheid government had introduced a raft of legislation, which made it more and more difficult for black South Africans to have any kind of career. Resistance in the country was growing. After the Sharpeville massacre, the government declared a state of emergency, and gatherings of more than 10 people were banned.
5: I'd been trying to leave South Africa since 1955. The who had got me my first trumpet in high school, Trevor Huddle still went to England, and um, we kept in touch, and I just kept saying to him, I know that I'll never get the kind of education and access to an international uh, attention I could get if I left the country, you know. I had to get out of there, plus it was getting worse. And I knew also that if I didn't get out of the country, I would be very, very involved in, like, um, a violent political reaction. So uh, my love for music was uh, very strong at the time and um, I was becoming an exponent of bebop. And, like, I really just wanted to go to New York to be a side man like the Jazz Messengers or the you know Horace Silver Group or just, you know, one of the quintets.
0: Apartheid had been in place for 12 years. After Sharpeville in 1960... You had, in fact, curfews and other rules which prevented large gatherings. It became almost impossible for musicians to work together before big audiences. You had the turning of the South African Broadcasting Corporation into Radio Bantu with strictly segregated playing slots, and a hybrid music like jazz simply would not find a place. On the radio, and for that reason, because record companies depended on airplay for their sales, the record companies were also beginning to segregate and narrowly define the genres in which their artists performed. So, everything together by the early 60s was coming together to make it a very inhospitable place for creative musicians who wanted to work with a degree of freedom.
1: Bing bong ball down a
8: mountain stream like paper
4: riding in the breeze, like strolling in the dark through streets. You
0: know, it was very difficult for musicians to leave. They were either refused passports completely if you had any kind of politics, even the most mildly outspoken, you'd definitely be refused a visa. Or alternatively, you were given a one-way visa. In other words, you, your passport was endorsed and you couldn't come back. So it was extremely difficult for people to get out. And many people, including Masakela and Guangwa, left the country in the touring cast of the musical show King Kong and then did not return. Come on, Lucky. <laughs> Let's go. Back of the moon boys, back of the moon boys, don't you
8: mean it's don't forgive Back of the moon, the end of the day, bust up with your bus,
7: left South Africa in 1960 with a scholarship to London's Guildhall School of Music. But whilst in London, he dreamed of New York, and joining jazzmen like Clifford Brown and Miles Davis.
1: Hurry, 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 take the A train to find the quickest way to get to Harlem.
7: Longtime friend and lover Miriam McCaber was already in the United States touring with Harry Belafonte, and she arranged for Hugh to join them. In 1964, they married. It was a stormy relationship that lasted only a few years, but they remained lifelong friends, musical collaborators and occasional lovers.
5: Actually, Miriam invented me. She brought me to the States. She was my girlfriend when we were in South Africa. It was quite a scandal because she was seven years older than me. When I met Miriam, I was 16. She was 23. And um, it wasn't as scandalous much as that older guys really, like, hated me for it. But I was quite a tough kid, so they couldn't really mess with me. And I had bad friends, too. So they kept off. And we dreamt about making it overseas with Miriam and she went a year before me and she wrote to me and she introduced me to Dizzy, to Louie, through letters, you know, to J.J. Johnson, to Miles.
7: And also to Harry Belafonte, who was a big benefactor of hers.
5: She was was on tour with Belafonte at the time. In fact, when I arrived in the States for three months, I didn't get to see them because they were on tour. But... uh, I was looking for, because I did my first album in 1961, and I was really looking to play, like, with um, Bud Blakey, the Jazz Mm -hmm. Messengers, because Clifford Brown came out of there and uh, Lee Morgan and Donald Byrd and Freddie Hubbard, you know, everybody came out of the Jazz Messengers, Blue Mitchell... And um a Buhana uh just said, No nah, man, you come from Africa, you gotta do your own thing, you know. And um I tried Horace Silver. No nah, man, you gotta play your own thing, you know, and everybody wouldn't give me a job. So like um I said, you know, uh, you're gonna just be a statistic. So but if you do something like Miriam from South Africa, from your home man, you know, then we're gonna learn something and you'll be different from all of us. At that time, I didn't know where to start, you know, and I started to say, I remember, like, the songs that in the dance bands, and we tried to, you know, we remembered those... But then Miriam had, like, a repertoire of hundreds of songs from her mother, who was a traditional healer and who just had, had a seven-octave voice. She could sing like a man, she could sing like a little girl. And that's how I learned the songs. So my first album, uh, The Americanization of Uga Booga, that really resonated with audiences. I think I have about three or four songs that, that I learned from Miriam and her daughter. At this time, we'd like to do for you a song comes from Swaziland. It's a song that I learned from my wife, who learned it from her mother. It's a healing song, and the words say, "When I was able and healthy, I had many friends, but
6: now that I am bedridden, I see many smiles on many faces."
5: I was forced to sing. You know, in bebop you wore dark glasses and like Ivy League suits with pencil ties and uh, you didn't sing, you were cool. So when uh, people like Belafonte and Miriam and Mars Davis, you know, and Dizzy said, why don't you do like Miriam and like bring in stuff from your home? So I started to, to, uh, Larry Willis was my first piano player, got to other musicians when we were at Manhattan School of Music And I was teaching them the songs, and I'd sing them the melodies. And they kept saying, man, you got to sing, man. And finally, they conspired with Miriam. And she said, if you don't sing, I'm going to leave you. And there was not going to be any band song. I was forced to sing. And I remember the first night I had to sing at the village gate was like one of the most painful moments of my life. I sort of sang with my eyes closed because I couldn't watch the people. I just felt that I just didn't have any credibility what I was doing. And when I finished the song, people just screamed. For I've been singing since then, and Louis Armstrong had told me you gotta sing, because if I can sing, anybody can sing. <laughs> Harry Belafonte was uh, the largest fundraiser for the civil rights movement. I mean, he like um, got all the artists together. I don't know how much, how many civil rights rallies and fundraisers I did with him and Miriam, Diane Carroll, Sidney Poeta, Marlon Brando, all those people. Uh, his favorite people were actually like Snake, you know, the, the Student non-violent Coordination and Martin Luther King, you know, and Snake was like Julian Bond and John Lewis and Stokely Carmichael and all those people. But, again, the funny thing is that even though I was in the States or even in England, you know, like racial prejudice against people of African origin was always like reeking, you know, and in the States it was more dangerous because in South Africa it was legislative. So the cops carried out all the racism, really, and to a certain extent, protected you against lynchings and all that. Whereas in the States, it was more volatile and more dangerous. And you were more vulnerable because anybody could kidnap you and go and string you up. When we were students, we had some students who were killed mysteriously in Pennsylvania. They went to Lincoln University and they was going out with white girls. And both, both of them were run over by cars. So um, I never, I didn't leave new york city for a year and a half because philadelphia new jersey they were really like with dangerous places to go to the one thing that still worries me today in the world is that people of african origin or african hue african complexion anywhere in the world anywhere in the world you go most of the people of african origin still live in squalor and abject poverty. And um, I think it's a crying shame to humanity at this point. I mean, there are many other poor ethnic groups, but collectively Africans all over the world live in squalor. So the world hasn't changed too much.
1: and all the leaders of the world. Would you keep silent and do nothing if you were in our place? Would you not resist if you were allowed no rights in your own country because the color of your skin is different to that of the rulers? I appeal to you to do everything you can to stop the coming tragedy. I appeal to you to save the lives of our leaders, to empty the prisons of all those who should never have been there.
7: At the same time that both Hugh and Miriam were heavily involved in the civil rights movement in the United States, they continued to speak out about conditions in South Africa. It made them unpopular with authorities in the US and brought them unwanted attention from the CIA and the FBI.
0: Remember the climate of the 60s, it may have been the era of flower power but it was also a very intense period within the Cold War. and. South Africans who were supporters of the nationalist movement at home, like Miriam McAber, who spoke out immensely bravely at the UN and in many other forums, and people like Hugh. I mean, Hugh made some music which perhaps is not so well known in this country. He made albums with track titles like Grenades and Guns, which were about what was going on here. And to the CIA, Hugh has said, we knew the CIA was watching us all the time. This was communist subversion. Remember that America in that period was an ally of apartheid South Africa. It saw apartheid South Africa as a bastion against Russia in the Cold War.
5: I remember like, I mean, a a time of just being hounded in the States. The South African government worked very closely to make sure that I was discredited because uh, I could go on to the Mike Douglas show or go on to the Johnny Carson show and talk about them and talk to 30 million Americans, you know. It was not an easy time, but um, when you're committed to a situation, you just stick with it because, you know, it's difficult to turn back. In
7: 1967, Hugh paired up with friend and producer Stuart Levine. They started their own production company and had a number one hit in 1968 with Up, Up and Away. His next record, probably his best-known, Grazing in the Grass, sold over four million copies. But the politics of Hugh's music did not endear him to the record companies.
5: Because at that time we were like very militant and we were into like the anti-Vietnam War, we were really anti-establishmentarian and really ravers. And of course our friends were people like Peter Fonda and um, Big Brother and the Holding Company, uh, Jefferson Starship... Um, the doors and all, all the entire vietnam war people and uh, we did a lot of concerts for like the black power situation for the civil rights so like i was so embroiled in that and the south african issue that i just couldn't relate to the gilded success at that time you know and um i did an album after grazing in the grass just called massacre and it talked about gold and it talked about mason grenades and like uh, a lot of situations South Africa, and I think that had like over 80,000 returns. Everybody heard it. They said, what is this communistic music? And if you just change the titles of the songs, you know, just change the titles. We don't mind if you leave the uh, songs as they are, you know, and they said, listen, if you can make a few more other grazing in the grasses, I said, when South Africa is free, maybe I'll do them, you know, but right now, this is what I want to express so that never really endeared me a great deal in my 20s and early 30s to the recording in the industry uh, there was like a troublemaker because basically during that time um, almost all like african-american artists except myself and miriam and maybe Belafonte and audetta everybody was basically singing uh, love songs you know they just couldn't get into somebody singing protest but like uh, That of course, and the Panthers and the Civil Rights Movement did a lot to affect the record business that by 1970 people like Marvin Gaye did was going on. Everybody started getting into that kind of situation.
7: one of the things that has always really struck me about you is you've had a long international career but you've never left South Africa behind. You never did, did you?
5: Well, I didn't have to. You know, uh, I'd been <laughs> again, but, you know, I'd been like with Miriam Makeba who spent all her life just working for Africa and sacrificed a great career, you know, for that Uh, Belafonte lived for civil rights, you know, and he just, like, said to me, man, once you forget where you come from, you're going to end up in a bad place. Louis Armstrong never finished a paragraph without talking about New Orleans. And um, it goes back to Paul Robinson, you know, and even Martin Luther King or or Malcolm X or um, Shaka Zulu Magana or Mm Inza Magana. I think that I was overseas physically, but spiritually I could never have left the cradle that I come from, you know, and um, indeed like after 12 years in the States, I got restless and I lived in the Congo, I lived in Botswana, I lived in Ghana, I lived in Nigeria, I lived in Liberia, I lived in Guinea. I just had to go to Africa because I wasn't from there, and what I found was like uh The world's greatest cultural rough diamond is just sitting there with all this stuff and it's the only thing that they can't take away from us. That was never about me. I always wanted to brag about the people that I came from. And I think it's like something that is very, very important for us to like recapture and glorify and show off because it's the strongest thing we have. My philosophy is that there's nothing in the world that Africa needs, but Africa is everything that the world needs. You know? They've taken it and they're taking it, but the one thing they can't take away is our heritage, and it's the one thing that we have to like build, and that is my biggest obsession.
7: In 1973, Hugh met Nigerian Afrobeat king Falakuti and began a long exploration into the music of West Africa and other African countries. Those years further shaped his music, particularly in the use of percussion and cross rhythms with voice and instrument. He travelled regularly between the US and Africa, living in Guinea for a while, and in the 1980s just over the South African border in Botswana. All the time, he was getting closer to home.
5: Fela was a dear friend. He was like a brother to me. And it's funny because more than anything, although music bound us together, the thing that bound us most was the thing I'm talking about because Fela felt as strongly about Africa. He abhorred African corruption you know, and military dictatorial African governments. But the thing that pulled us mostly together was we laughed. When we were together, we laughed so much. The one thing that I learned mostly with Fela is to laugh at the absurdity of what is happening to Africa, you know? Even though I object to it and oppose it very much. I mean, all of Fela's songs were jokes jokes against the establishment he really like took the mickey out of them and, and they're sad songs but he made them funny and he said Hugh you know if you don't laugh you won't make it <laughs> he used to say that man if you don't laugh you won't make it you know you won't you gotta laugh at this shit because it's funny <laughs> and then we'll be laughing then he said isn't it sad man this shit is sad it's so sad it's funny you know he made fun of everybody, even guys like Wallace Oyinka at the time. I yeah, didn't like Fela because he just thought they were part of the establishment. <laughs> ah, you with your degrees and your high English, you are thinking of a white man, you know. It was <laughs> but they all respected him. Fela had somebody like um, who took notes of in the band, you know, because his band was like really well rehearsed and. Uh, He introduced me to West Africa. He introduced me to the reality of Africa and playing uh, with his band. I was there for a month and I played every day with him at the shrine, you know, and his shows were like 12, 13 hours. And it was some of the most wonderful times, musical times in my life because the band was just like, you know, that's the band that had like uh, Dunde on trumpet and Tony Allen on drums and Kofi on pakai. It was just the most fantastic band.
6: If you got a woman African woman, no go gree.
8: She go say, she goes say ha. the Sa If you
6: got a woman African woman, no go-gree. She go say, she go say, hey, hey,
5: Shake, sa, a, woman woman no sa. a friend of mine showed up in 79 the name of Bloy Muloy, who had been a promoter when we were still in South Africa as teenagers, myself and Miriam. And he said, we miss you guys, man. Why don't you come and play somewhere near home so that people can see you, since you can't come home? So like we eventually chose Lesotho, and in Christmas of 1980, we played at Maseru Stadium in Lesotho, myself and Miriam, for about 75,000 people who came from mostly South Africa. It was fabulous. And uh, I was supposed to stay a week, I stayed three months, and a childhood friend of mine invited me to Botswana where I met Kalahari. And uh, it was like the first time really in 20 years that I was able to sing so freely in all my languages. The band knew all my songs. And uh, I was talking Tswana, Zulu, Xhosa, Sutu every day. It was something that I think um, my mouth and uh, my body had missed.
6: There's a train that comes from Namibia and Malawi. There's a train that comes from Zambia and Zimbabwe. There's a train that comes from Angola and Mozambique. From Lesotho, from Botswana, from Swaziland, from all the hinterlands of Southern and Central Africa. This train carries young and old African men who are conscripted to come and work on contract in the gold and mineral mines of Johannesburg and its surrounding metropoli. Sixteen hours or more a day for almost no pay. Deep, deep, deep down in the belly of the earth when they are digging and drilling for that shiny, mighty, evasive stone or when they dish that mishmash mash food into their iron plates with an iron shovel or when they sit in their stinky, funky, filthy, flea ridden barracks and hostels they think about the loved ones they may never see again because they might already have been forcibly removed from where they last left them or wantonly murdered in the dead of night by roving and marauding gangs of no particular origin we are told they think about their lands and their herds that were taken away from them with the gun and the bomb and the tear gas and the gatling and the cannon. And when they hear that choo-choo train, a chucking and, 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 and a pumping and a smoking and a pushing and a pumping, crying and a steaming and a chicken and a wham! They always curse and they curse the coal train. The gold train that brought them to Johannesburg.
4: Mr. Mandela, Mr. Nelson Mandela, a free man, taking
2: his first steps into a new South Africa.
5: I didn't have any hope at all that we'd ever come back. And uh, in 1989, when some of my friends uh, were calling me or writing to me and saying, I think you should prepare to come back, I thought they were joking. And uh, I didn't believe it until we saw Mandela. And we didn't think that they'd ever release Mandela and Tambo would be uh, allowed to come back to South Africa. When that happened, we knew we would be able to go back. And um, uh, it was like uh, an unexpected bonanza uh, for people like me who uh, to be able to re-immerse myself in the life of South Africans, especially struggling South Africans, and, like, relearn the language and have an opportunity to absorb the things that I had taken for granted before and didn't learn. crazy about Africa, as you can tell, but I'm very actively involved in letting Africans see Africa, because one of the things Africans are prevented from internationally is identifying themselves as a common group, and they've never seen each other in their excellence. They know only of each other from their misery side. And the world also portrays only the miserable side, the side we didn't cause. For Africa to come back to itself, it needs to see itself, to experience itself, to show off its excellence. And that way the world will decide that maybe we should respect these people because look at like, uh, how grand they are and how fascinating they are. My biggest obsession, being back home, is to bring back musically and culturally, uh, make visible those things about our culture that apartheid got rid of. And especially to South Africans and Africans, the visibility of their heritage is the most important thing because I'm afraid that if I can't do that, my little granddaughter Nairobi, who's five years old, when they ask her, who are you? 20 years from now, I don't want her to say, they say we
4: used to be African. Of Home and Heart, The Musical Journey of Hugh Masakela by Sharon Davis, engineered by Stephen Tilley. This story first aired on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. To hear more of Masakela's music, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to ReSound. I'm Gwen Maxai. We'd love to hear about your journeys, musical and otherwise. Write to us at ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. While Hugh Masekela was fighting apartheid in South Africa, jazz singer Anne Searcy was fighting her own battle against discrimination on the East Coast of the United States. In our next story, Anne, now much older and struggling with multiple sclerosis, reflects on her upbringing and how she came to meet her hero, the Duke.
1: Hello, folks.
2: Anne Searcy is a 76-year-old jazz singer. She spent most of her childhood as one of the only people of color in Old Orchard Beach, Maine, her mother opened a guest home there for chauffeurs and maids who had probably never before had a chance to have a vacation.
1: Colored people didn't do too well in that town. One girl, a French girl, she used to say, "Hey, nigger, I do not like you. You're a nigger, a nigger." I used to beat her up every single day. So she was running up the stairs. I grabbed her by her foot, and I was going to push her head on the metal strippings of the stairs. One of my teachers saw me what I was going to do. She grabbed me. She said, you could have killed her. I said, yeah, I'm guess I could have. I'm tired of being called nigger every single day. So my teacher said, "And I'm going to tell your mother. So I said, all right, well, you can call my mother. But she told me if I didn't beat the children that called me nigger, she was going to beat me.
2: By the time Anne's mother opened her guest home in the early 30s, Old Orchard Beach was home to a carnival featuring amusement rides, hot dogs, and games of chance. The town's most recognizable feature was a 700-foot long pier perched over the Atlantic surf. Big bands filled the pier's ballroom all summer long. One time, Edward Kennedy Ellington, known as the Duke, Duke Ellington, came to Anne's home and asked if he could rent a room.
1: I was introduced to him as Anne and he, Mr. Ellington, and all through the years he remained Mr. Ellington. We have a, had a piano in one of the rooms. He used to go in there and practice and and that's where I really got my love for music.
2: Mr. Ellington and his baritone sax player, Harry Carney, took a special interest in Anne. They must have known what her life was like in that small town. They called Anne from the road and gave her free tickets to all the shows in New England. By the time she was 18, Anne was already developing a singing career of her own, playing in lounges in small coastal towns.
1: I get sort of a happy feeling when I do sing. All my feelings come out in the words to those songs.
2: The summer after Anne graduated from high school, Mr. Ellington played a concert with his band at the pier in Old Orchard. Anne put on her best dress and some high-heeled shoes for the show. She walked to the pier and collected her free tickets. She walked into the hall, out over the ocean. The Duke had a surprise in store for Anne that night.
1: Well, he asked me... He called me Ann. Miss Ann, come here. I guess my mouth must have just flown open. He said, "Anne, as many times as we have played when you have been right along with us, you have never, ever requested a song. So I said, how about Tenderly? So he said, Miss Ann, even as old as I am, I still can play Tenderly. So I did get a chance to sing that song with the band. The evening breeze. Caress the trees tenderly. The trembling trees embrace the breeze tenderly. Your arms open wide and close me inside. You took my lips. You took my love so tenderly. That's the only part I can remember.
2: Today, Anne lives in a Portland nursing home. She has multiple sclerosis and needs some help getting around. Two autographed photos of Duke and Mildred Ellington hang on the wall in her bedroom. She looks at them every morning. And some days she sits in her wheelchair in the rec room and sings to her friends and neighbors.
4: Anne Meets Mr. Ellington was produced by Carrie Seed at the SALT Institute for Documentary Studies in Portland, Maine. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, Chicago's Navy Pier, and American Airlines. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.
3: You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. Now that it's over, here are a few suggestions. Become our fan on Facebook. Write us a review on iTunes. Buy a t-shirt in our merch shop or make a donation to support what we do at thirdcoastfestival.org. Thanks for listening.